millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This content is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. On the evening of May 6, 1996, 94-year-old Dorothy Wood said goodbye to her care assistant who had come by to get her ready for bed in the home she had lived in for 60 years. The house was too big for her, she knew that, but she was fiercely independent. Profoundly deaf, with a heart condition and various other medical problems, Dorothy fought to keep her independence. Frail enough that she could barely do a washing up, she regularly had people checking in on her, was close with her neighbours, and so a day would not go by without someone checking in on her welfare. Having been broken into while she was home, both earlier that year and three years before, Dorothy had a burglar alarm installed, but she kept triggering it by accident, and because she couldn't hear it, she decided to switch it off altogether. The following morning, just after 8am, Roy and Phyllis Smith came to the house to help Dorothy out of bed and get her breakfast. As they approached the front door, they both knew something was wrong. The door was ajar and the outside light was on. As they stepped inside, they saw clothes on the floor and the telephone pulled from the wall. Dorothy slept in the downstairs bedroom. When they went in, they found her on the bed in her pyjamas. The bedclothes pulled entirely off the bed they knew straight away that she was dead. There was a narrow, horizontal window called a transom window that sat above the main bedroom window. It was open. In tears, the Smiths ran next door to the neighbour saying somebody had killed Dorothy and frantic, they phoned the police. My name's Benjamin Fitton from They Walk Among Us. Welcome to Murder Town, the podcast. Following each episode of Crime and Investigation's brand new true crime TV series, we'll explore another case right here. When authorities arrived, it was clear that someone had forced open that small transom window with a screwdriver or something similar and crawled through. With Dorothy being deaf, she wouldn't have heard anything and with no indication of a struggle, it was difficult to know a cause of death. They thought there was a chance she may have had a heart attack after the intruder startled her. Dorothy had little in the way of expensive items, and she carried little money. The only thing found to be stolen was £10 in cash from her purse. 
situated at the convergence of the Holm and Colne rivers, Huddersfield was built on a well-known cottage textile industry. Small dwellings were set up to spin, dye and weave wool and the rivers provided the perfect means to wash the raw yarn. The Industrial Revolution bought larger mills and the industry boomed with Huddersfield being renowned for its high-quality fine woolen products. But as the towns and cities across Great Britain fought hard against the effects of two world wars, Huddersfield's industrial heart suffered. At the commencement of the Second World War, the armed forces estimated they would require 5,000 trained nurses. 67,000 would be needed to care for casualties of air raids, a number of which far outweighed how many trained nurses there actually was in employment at the time. A civilian nursing reserve was established, training up women from all over to aid in the nursing care of the wounded. Many women who became auxiliaries or assistant nurses at the time would continue their nursing careers well after the war was over. Nursing was all Dorothy knew, and like many other nurses of the time, she had spent her career in many areas across the community, predominantly as a school nurse, working in five schools across the district. She had been a midwife and a nurse at Halifax Hospital, as well as a home health visitor, something that in later life she would come to need herself. She had pride in knowing by name upwards of 3,000 children who had come and gone from her care, and when she could, she still attended her local Christchurch, a few streets from her home. Dorothy was well known and deeply cared for by those that knew her. People described her as gracious and caring. The community found it difficult to come to terms with what had happened and that anyone would deliberately kill a 94-year-old. She would have had no way of defending herself and if she had had the opportunity, she would have given the intruder the £10. A memorial bench that would later be built on her street following her death would be engraved with kind neighbour, good friend and communitarian. When Dorothy's autopsy results came in, police were shocked to find her cause of death noted as suffocation, likely by her own bed pillow. This information was withheld from the public in the hope that if a person of interest came to light, it would be a detail only they would know. The inquiry was led by Detective Superintendent Gary Hay and the belief was that she either may have recognised the intruder, possibly someone from a local area, or that she was killed to stop her raising the alarm. An examination of the scene found no fingerprints anywhere in the house and no prints on the door or window. The only piece of evidence found was on the exterior of the bedroom window. Directly below the transom were two ear impressions. Just like a hand or palm print, ears, if pressed against a surface, can leave a print. The belief was that the murderer had pushed his ears against the glass more than once to try and listen for a noise inside. But ear prints were not a method of identification that British police had ever encountered. It was something that would be put aside while they pursued other avenues. The investigation focused on burglars known to the area and especially those with a similar method of operation. In the meantime, a public notice was released telling the community that they wished to speak with anyone who had been in the Whitby Street area around the time of the murder. People were told to take extra care with security, particularly with their doors and windows. 
Information was slow, and the process of ruling out known burglars in the area went on for months. In August that year, police were told that a prison inmate had information regarding Dorothy's murder. The informant, who was never publicly named, told police that his cellmate had told him that he had been involved in the murder of Dorothy Wood, that he was the murderer. There were two things about this information that piqued the detective's interest. One was that the inmate had revealed that he had suffocated Dorothy with a pillow, a detail that had not been published, and two, the inmate, Mark Dallager, was, at the time of the murder, free, out on bail for burglary. And not just that, he lived only a few streets from Dorothy. Police went to question Dallager in prison. When asked about his whereabouts on the night of the murder, Dallager believed he was at home with his girlfriend, but she would have trouble confirming his alibi because she was asleep and on medication. He denied any involvement whatsoever, also stating that he had an ankle injury at the time and would not have physically been able to get up to the window. 25-year-old Mark Dallager appeared to be a petty thief. He had broken into local homes and had been known to open transom windows, but it was difficult to imagine he was a thief capable of murder. Detectives were not taking any chances, and they requested Dallager provide a controlled impression of his ears. With no other evidence but these two ear impressions, detectives decided to look further afield and soon found that there were several people worldwide looking into the forensic study of earprints. At the time, there was no earprint database like there was for fingerprints, but there was a Dutch police officer, Mr van der Lucht, who dedicated the previous 10 years to the study of ear impressions. He believed that ear prints were as unique as fingerprints, and if a comparison were noted between Mark Dallager and the two impressions found on the bedroom window, then they would have a case. He had no formal forensic science qualifications, but his theory had begun to gain momentum. West Yorkshire police soon sent the ear prints and the impressions taken from Mark Dallager to Holland for examination. Police were then able to support Mr van der Luck's findings with the support of Professor Peter Vanezes, Regis Professor of the Forensic Medicine and Science at the University of Glasgow. He too agreed with the process and the findings after also being asked to conduct an examination. Both experts of this new identification technique were convinced the earprints were a match. The combination of the earprints, the informant and the fact that Dallager had used transom windows to gain access to homes in the past was enough evidence to make an arrest. Mark Dallager spent almost two years on remand awaiting trial. The prosecution had a lot of work to do building their case, considering ear evidence was a new form of identification and had never been used in any court in the United Kingdom, let alone convict anyone of a crime. The trial was held in Leeds Crown Court. Mark Dallager pleaded not guilty and continued to claim his innocence while his legal counsel attempted to have evidence of prior burglaries deemed inadmissible. That request was denied. Cornelius van der Lutte was flown in to be an expert witness, as was Professor Peter van Eses from Glasgow. When the Dutch police officer took the stand, the jury was told of his 27 years' service as a police officer in Holland, as well as his years as a lecturer at the Dutch Police College. Although he had no qualifications in forensics, 
He had a keen interest in ear identification techniques and had begun studying it in his own time over a decade earlier. He had been building up his portfolio, and by that time he had approximately 600 photographs and 300 earprints in his catalogue. It was an area that he believed would soon take off because all of his research had shown that just like fingerprints, no two ears were the same. He would look at five or six points of comparison when looking for a match, but seeked an overall comparison, something he explained as being a process of using image overlays. In this case, he looked at the four overlapping prints on the window at the scene of a left ear. He was, in his words, absolutely convinced that Mark Dallager's ear matched. He explained that after viewing the original glass, he was also able to locate a right ear impression. This one matched a total of seven points, an even greater match to Dallager than the left ear print. When Professor Venezes took the stand, he described a very similar process, and as the jury watched on, he delivered a video montage of his findings, something no courtroom in the UK had ever seen before. He agreed with the Dutchman's theory, but he did question the value of measurements. An ear can be pushed or squashed in all different ways, and an impression could be different every time. He described how ears are made up of soft tissue and cartilage, so expecting them to distort the same way every time was difficult and could lead to different measurements or angles. Both experts agreed that more research needed to be done and a greater database required, but it was of both their expert opinions that the earprints left at the crime scene were put there by Mark Dallager. Dallager's defence did not call any expert witness to challenge the two earprint expert testimonies. They cross-examined and questioned the ear comparison analysis and its ability to be precise, but there were no experts called in to refute their claims, and there were other experts out there who had a huge issue with the techniques being presented. Cautious, the judge advised the jury as follows. Bearing this in mind, we have here a print on the window of a right and left ear to compare against the known prints of this defendant. There is a remote possibility that the impressions on the window may have been left there by somebody other than the defendant. It is the witness's firm opinion was that it was very likely this defendant made those prints, but he cannot be 100% certain. He explained the risk of convicting based on a forensic method still in its relative infancy, but advised the jury that they were entitled to convict based on Mr. van der Lutz's evidence if they wished, and they did. On the 15th of December 1998, Mark Dallager was found guilty of murder of Dorothy Wood and later sentenced to life imprisonment. He became the first person in British legal history to be tried and convicted on the strength of earprint identification. The Crown had proven a new legal technique and one they believed would set the wheels in motion for new groundbreaking police investigations. After the trial, the Wakefield Crown Prosecution serviceman, Norman Sarsfield, stated that the verdict was a great step forward for forensic evidence and would form the basis of case law in the future, with Detective Inspector Brian Dent of West Yorkshire Police saying of the legal first conviction, we now have another weapon in our arsenal against crime. Over the months that followed, other police departments began to follow suit. Within a month of Dallager's conviction, 
the National Training Centre for Scientific Crime Investigation in County Durham, had recorded over 1,200 ears into their new ear identification database. The Chief Fingerprint Officer with the Lancashire Police, John Kennelly, told the BBC that although ears do not have ridges as fingerprints do, they are similar, in that the cartilage and contours of each ear give it a unique shape, were unlike any other. He believed that up until this point, police had been oblivious to the importance of ear impressions left at crime scenes, and it was something that would need to be followed through in the future. Despite the confidence of police and the new fame the conviction had afforded Mr Van der Loot, Mark Dallager and his legal team were set to appeal the sentence. Over the next two years, four people would be convicted on airprint evidence in Britain, including Albert James, a 43-year-old man sent to prison by Preston Crown Court after being found guilty of seven burglaries, the only evidence used to convict him? Earprints. With courts accepting this evidence as fact, forensic scientists came forward voicing their concerns. They had a massive issue with the new and not yet sufficiently proven technique. Many believed that there was not enough solid research to say that earprint evidence was a safe enough method of identification, let alone the only piece of evidence in some cases. Scientists who supported this method were prevented from joining the Council for the Registration of Forensic Practitioners, a group of experts who were in place to provide scientifically based evidence to the courts. By 2001, two and a half years after Dalliger's conviction, the notion that earprint identification as a reliable method of identification in a court of law was waning. Professor Peter von Koppen of Holland's Leiden University published a paper in the Journal of Forensic Sciences disputing the earprint evidence and discrediting van der Loot's findings. He stated that there was minimal scientific basis for it and the method of laying the suspect's print on top of the one that was found at the scene and examining them for differences was deeply flawed. There was absolutely no scientific proof that ears were unique after all. He said that there has been no research done in which you can say, for instance what the national distribution of lobes is, so you don't know if the earprint is one which would match 80% of everyone else's or whether it has unique characteristics. Von Koppen's report led to the discrediting of earprint evidence in both the United States and Europe, and the United Kingdom was about to follow suit. Cornelius van der Loot refused to give up. He confirmed that he would be running his own large-scale scientific research project which would test thousands of earprints across nine institutes in Europe. In mid-2002, the Court of Appeals agreed that Dallager's conviction was unsafe and a new trial was ordered. With a new defence counsel, Mark Dallager argued that he did not get a fair trial and the Court of Appeals granted him a retrial on the following four counts. The jury should never have heard the expert ear evidence because in law it is inadmissible. According to the Court of Appeals, if Dallager's defence counsel had available the experts that they do now, who have scientifically proven the method of identification to be unlawful, then they would have been likely to have the earprint evidence ruled as inadmissible. It has never been scientifically proven. Even if the ear evidence was deemed admissible, the defence counsel would have cross-examined much more effectively had they had their own experts on this evidence. 
In the absence of the defence calling experts on this evidence, it allowed the experts who argued for the earprint evidence to present their evidence in a way that it was too favourable to the Crown prosecution. Something that is sometimes referred to as the prosecutor's fallacy. And finally, it was ruled that the original trial judge was wrong to allow the prosecution to present the evidence of Mark Dallager's previous burglaries. This evidence should have been inadmissible to the court. The fact that the jury heard evidence that they should not have, and likewise did not hear evidence that they should have, made the retrial an easy decision. The following year, in the June of 2003, Mark Dallager's retrial began. He had been behind bars for the murder for almost six years and the past two spent waiting for the legal processes to play out, sure that he would be freed, but waiting for the cogs to turn until he was allowed the forum to prove his innocence. By that time, two other convictions based on air evidence had been overturned on appeal, one in the United States and one in Holland. Earprint-based evidence had been discredited entirely. As well as the earprint arguments, over the course of ten days, the court heard of the lack of any other evidence to place Mark Dallager at the scene of Dorothy Wood's murder. At that point, the trial was abandoned and Dallager's conviction quashed. He was freed on bail while the Crown reviewed the case. The West Yorkshire Police launched a new, full reinvestigation of the evidence and were fortunate enough to have advanced in forensic testing on their side. As they dove headfirst into the new investigation, they hoped that something new might show up in the evidence. In late January 2004, another six months down the track, Mark Dallager's retrial began again at the Old Bailey. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. New confidential information had been supplied concerning the prison informant, and because of this, the prosecution made the decision not to rely on the informant's evidence at all during the retrial, and therefore presented no evidence against Mark Gallagher. Then, a new piece of evidence was presented something no one involved in the first trial some five years earlier would have ever expected. During the re-examination of the case, forensic scientists were able to utilise advances in forensic testing. They were able to obtain a DNA profile from the ear imprints left on the glass window above Dorothy Wood's bed. The DNA profile was cross-checked against Mark Dallager and was found not to match his DNA. The ear impressions that had put him away for life had turned out to be someone else's. The DNA profile matched another person and implicated another suspect. There was no information released as to whether this person was thought to be the killer or whether they had been ruled out. All that is publicly known is that the four overlapping earprints left on Dorothy Wood's window did not match Mark Dallager. The judge, Sir Stephen Mitchell, formally found Dallager not guilty, saying to the 30-year-old, I hope you continue to live peacefully in Essex. Mark Dallager, having been labelled a murderer for seven years, simply replied, thank you. He was freed and his record for murder cleared. His defence counsel James Sturman QC said, this is another example of the dangers of the police following scientists too closely when the scientists are building a science, not following a science. Speaking on behalf of Dallager, he said, He would wish to say that the killing of Dorothy Wood was a wicked crime, but it has nothing to do with him, and stated that this is another case where a serious miscarriage of justice has occurred because of unreliable science. Mark Dallager told The Guardian, I've waited seven years for this day. I spent six of those years in prison protesting my innocence to deaf ears. These last nine months have been a terrible ordeal all as a result of the prosecution's reliance on now-discredited expert evidence. His solicitor finishing on, he feels he now has to rebuild his life again and feels strongly that the police should be required to properly investigate this wicked crime so Dorothy Wood's family can have justice. Neither he nor the victim's family has had any sort of apology for the seven-year ordeal. He is going to recover now from today, which has been an ordeal in itself, and rebuild his life. When Dallager was interviewed for the BBC documentary Rough Justice, 
He described how he had found it difficult to cope after his release, despite living with his fiancée, who he had met and fell in love with during the time of the retrials. The documentary depicted a man struggling with modern society and life outside a jail cell. He kept his own room at his house, folding his clothes and his washcloth, just like he had done in prison, and sticking pictures and cards around his bed in a room he continued to call his cell. He said, You can't just take a man's whole life off him, take his freedom away from him, and just put him away for years, and then kick him back out again after eight years and say, OK, go on then, you're all right. It doesn't work like that. I'm struggling, you know. I'm 30 years old, but I'm struggling going to town centres and getting on a bus and using a phone. Everything is hard. Everything. I don't know how to use a mobile phone, and I don't know how to work DVD players. I'm having to learn everything. Two decades after Dorothy's murder, her friends and family still have no idea who was responsible. They are no further towards an answer on who killed her. A 94-year-old woman, living alone and smothered for the sake of £10. I'm Catherine Kelly, host of Crime and Investigation's brand new true crime TV series, Murder Town. Join me next Monday at 9pm as we visit Sunderland, with its iconic stadium and great outdoor spaces, but it was also the home to one of the most dangerous serial killers in the UK. For more information on the series, head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk and let us know your thoughts by searching for Crime and Investigation on social media or using hashtag MurderTown. The Murder Town podcast is hosted by Benjamin Fitton, written by Anna Priestland, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by James Colopy. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.